Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Disky Discussions. I'm your host, A.B. Basson. In this week's episode, I'm joined by former Bafana Bafana forward, George Zulushark Durnley. We chat about Amazulu's rise, club ownership, South Africa's Afghan failure, and much, much more. This is simply an episode you don't want to miss. George, thanks for joining me on Disky Discussions. I think a perfect place to start is Amazulu. Um, obviously, they're battling at the right end of the standings, which is great to see for a club of that stature. Um, obviously, under new ownership uh, quite recently. Uh, what have you made of them this season? Obviously, the introduction of Benny McCarthy as head coach has also boosted them uh, a lot in recent weeks. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when the new owners took over, they they made a big statement. You know, they, they went into the transfer market. They bought some big names. And the biggest one, obviously, Sempiwa Shabalala. Uh, but straight away they got criticism that it was becoming an old age home um, and there, there was some criticism about some of the players and their ages which I kind of defended by saying that you you don't you can never underestimate the experienced players the, their contribution on a Monday to Friday you know on the training pitch in the corridors and then uh, if you only evaluate them or, or base their performance on the 90 minutes that they can or can't give you on a weekend you're missing the point you know and yeah. I think Amazon did some experienced players to just kind of guide some of the youngsters. So that was one step. Uh, then the chairman made a, quite a big statement that, that he was tired of the club fighting relegation and being in the bottom four, and he, he couldn't understand why they couldn't change the mindset and be a top four side. And that's easier said than done, obviously. But he's a very successful business guy. He's come from through Amlazi, you know, all the way into the top of business. So he, he's got a path to success in his own mind. And that was a case of translating that into a football club. But again, not easy. And uh, they didn't have a good start. And then I think he realized that um, Cobra Lamini was a, maybe a little bit out of his depth as a new coach. And, uh, geez, they picked a winner, you know, with Benny. Um, yeah. and, and I said, you know, I've, I've chatted about this to a couple of people that just putting Benny in the job wasn't enough. You, you had to surround Benny with the people that he wanted. And I think a lot of clubs in South Africa make the mistake of a of appointing a head coach, but then saying, but you have to use all these other people that are already at the club. Benny could bring in his own people and, and obviously he brought in Monib and they've played together and they know each other really well. And then Basil as well, Vasily Manitsakis. And having Bele Numveti, people forget him and Benny played up front together for the, the SA Olympic side. So Benny put his technical team together and suddenly you had all the right elements, but the fact that they've all gelled in, in a relatively short space of time is, is nothing short of fantastic, brilliant. And I'm an Amazulu fan, so yeah, really chuffed. In a day of uh, Super Leagues and stuff like that, where we see a big gap between ownership and the fans on the ground, is it refreshing to see an owner you know, like the Amazulu owner that's really hands-on, that seems to love the club? Um, is it really refreshing in your eyes? And you think that that bodes well for the club going forward? Yeah, I love it. I love his passion. Uh, he leads the chance. You know, he's he's <laughs> now for the club. Uh, he wears his, his replica shirt everywhere. I saw on Twitter that he was giving uh, some history lessons, you know, on Zulu culture and, and Zulu history and that. And, you know, that's all stuff that, because I'm a student of history and, and, and when I played at Amazulu, I wanted to learn about the club. You know, I've actually read like a 5,000-page book on the history of the Zulu people. And there's an owner who really puts his heart and soul. And that's that's like a term that's kind of easily thrown around, but he really lives it. He puts his heart and soul into his ownership of the club. And it is refreshing, especially in the day and age when, when franchises are bought and sold 
You know, like every five minutes, it's it's ridiculous that a club like Wits can you lose 99 years of history, you know, at the stroke of a pen. So yeah, I'm I'm really chuffed by, by Mr. Zungu and the family and the business that's behind it and the passion. And um, geez, and I hope they get the success that they that they deserve. Yeah, his history lessons while kayaking was was kind of cool. Uh, I enjoyed. Yeah, I watched that, that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously Benny has now been linked to the Bafana job. I think, you know, that that's always going to be the case. A guy like him, you know, legend like him, will probably step into those shoes one day. I don't know if it's the right time for him right now. Um, but, you know, we're obviously searching for a new coach. Carlos Queros has been, you know, his name has been uh, touted as the favorite. What do you make of, of Bafana Bafana right now? We obviously find ourselves in a really dark place, having lost to Sudan and, you know, and Afghan qualifiers. And, you know, all six World Cup qualifiers will take place in the next few months. Where do you, how do you see us doing in a very, very difficult group? Yeah, firstly, the situation is nothing short of a circus, to be honest. You know, um, the fact that, that Benny's having a good season and suddenly someone's saying that he should be the Bafana coach, and, and that's a credit to Benny, but it, it really shows the real lack of, of planning, uh, forward thinking at the highest level. You know, uh, and I, I don't know Malefi and Teki well enough to judge him as a person, but the feedback that I've got, he's a, he's a nice enough man. He's a decent enough coach. But it's nothing short of a shocking decision that he was appointed in the first place, you know, with no real experience. And um, the, the results proved the doubt is right. You know, and now it's kind of like a, another last-minute decision. I mean, the first qualification match is around the corner. Mm. They don't have a coach. We're in a tough group. See, there's no mistake in that. And um, and I heard that the, the terms of the new agreement will be that the coach gets a bonus if we qualify for the World Cup. I, I mean, it's, <laughs> the coach even wins three games. He's done an unbelievable job. So... I think it's a bit of a shambles at the moment. And I, if I was Benny's advisor, I would say, don't don't touch the job right now. It's toxic. You, you're, you're on a hiding to nothing. There's no real support structures. There's no success is, is really going to be really, really tough. You know, so yeah. I think he's doing fantastic at a club level. I think he needs to stay there for a good couple more years. And no matter what a fantastic player he was, and he's, he's a born winner, I know Benny quite well, and, you know, he, he will fight to win a throw into win a corner, you know, never mind a football match. So his time will come. You know, he is the future Bafana coach. There's no doubt about that in my mind, but not right now. So so right now there's going to be an interim coach. I, I, I don't know who would, who would take it, but when you see 40 coaches applying for the chipper job every month, that means there's a market for coaches. So so someone's going to take the job. But I think that coach is on a hiding to nothing. We, you know, the Vision 2022 was obviously thrown around, um, you know, a few years back. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of short-term planning instead of long-term planning, uh, and you know, realistically. Um, do you think that's been, you know, the huge uh, problem for our downfall and real um cause for our downfall over the last few years is it doesn't seem to be real planning going into the Bafana Bafana structure. Yeah, you know, maybe I had a long conversation with the German and the 16 coach given a four-year program to win the European under-16 championships. So he had a four-year program. This is under-16s. And he had selected 200 players in the first year, and then it was down to 100, and then down to the final 60, and then he finally picked his squad. And he got they lost in the final against Holland on penalties, and he got fired. That's under 16 level, four-year 
planning. Now, the way they work it out is there's got to be a long-term plan, then there's a medium-term plan, and then there's a short-term plan, but it's all got to be linked. Yeah. And someone's got to monitor it and evaluate it. I, I don't think anyone's got a real plan for South African football. There, there's definitely not a 20-year plan. You know, and I mean, if Belgium, Belgium put together a 10-year plan and that generation of players are Eden Hazard and Romelu Lukaku, that was a 10-year plan. We we just kind of live, I think we almost live week to week. You know, what are we going to do next week? And we're playing Cape Verde away. No one even knew it was an AstroTurf. It's it's, <laughs> it's small thing that's really frustrating as an ex I'm embarrassed to some an ex-player sometimes. Um so I don't know what the I don't the short term plan right now is to find a coach in the next couple of weeks, you know. So the fact that you haven't got a coach right now means you can't plan because the coach has got to be involved in the plan. About the under twenty threes, about the under twenties, about the under seventeens. I want to know who's scouting. I, I want to know who's playing regular minutes. You know, I, I looked at the Olympic squad. I know David Natwani really well, but I'm I'm very curious as to some of those selections. You know, and that's the Olympic squad is the future of Bufana Bufana. Yeah, but it doesn't. It just doesn't seem like that everything fits. It's almost like it's a project over there, and there's a project over there, and please God, maybe they meet somewhere in the middle. But it, I'm not convinced. Obviously, you've been involved at amateur football and in the ABC Motsepe League of Magic, Magic FC. So you've, you know, you've seen where football should start in the country. Um, obviously, there's still a lot to be done in that aspect. Uh, for everyone that doesn't know and doesn't understand, you know, what problems we face in, you know, the lower leagues. Uh, can you do, maybe just give us a, a short you know, <laughs> recap or whatever uh, of what's going on in the lower leagues. And obviously of COVID-19, it's made everything a lot worse. Yeah, listen, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, uh, you know, your show's not long enough for all the issues I experienced in my seven years in the ABC League. But the reason we keep going back is we love the game, you know, and it's the it's the small victories. It's it's seeing a young player like uh, Tupela Koki that's at Amazulu now who played for me in the ABC Montsepe League at 17 and it was a gangly, clumsy kid, and, and myself, Gerald Stober, Keegan Walker, we worked on him, we worked on him, and two years later, he signed a five-year contract at Amazulu, and two years into his contract, he was the club captain, you know, at 21 years old, and now he's starring for the club. So it's those type of success stories. That's why we changed the name to, to Magic as well. Tapella signing that contract was the magic of football. It's mm -hmm. stuck in my head. There are small victories. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of passionate people. There, there are people who give their time and their energy every single week and they don't make a cent. They don't make any money out of football, but they love it, you know, versus the people who are making the money and they're not all bad people, but there's a lot of people making money in football who don't love football and I don't even know if they care about football. And as long as they're getting their, their payment and the ABC Motsepe League is an under 23 league. That's That's kind of your your development, supposed to be your development phase for NFD and then PSL. Uh, but then when the MDC league came in, it kind of became a competitor to the under-23 league. Uh, and so no money, there's no real money in the under-23 league. I, I, I won't tell you how much money I spent over seven years and I will never get it back. But it was the most, it was an expensive education, but it was a brilliant education because I can do pretty much everything in football now. Um and you have to have you have to have grassroots. You, you have to have people playing on terrible fields and terrible conditions, you know. And, and we moan at the referees, but thank God for those people who come out and referee those games on bad fields in bad conditions. 
I've only got a lot more respect for for amateur referees because the last few weeks I've been refereeing under 18 games. <laughs> and and my, my former international career means nothing to some 16-year-old who thinks I've given a bad decision, you know. So <laughs> but there's there's this mismatch between all the money in the top two tiers, in fact, really only in the top tier, and nothing nothing from the third division down. And it's not sustainable. You know, it's uh, there's too many people trying too many shortcuts. And then you've got 19, 20-year-old players who can't take throw-ins, you know, and that's and we're trying to compete with the best in the world. It's impossible. You've obviously moved away from, from club ownership now, but if we can maybe just reminisce about Magic FC and, and the run to the NetBank Cup, um, how, how did that come about? And obviously a lot of work uh, going on behind the scenes. Uh, and then you guys, I think, lost to Kaiser Chiefs in the end, 3-0, was it in East London or Port Elizabeth? Um, in extra time. Eh? In, extra, in extra, time. extra time. Yeah, I won't forget that. Um, <laughs> what what was that like? And obviously, that's that's the mag- magic of the cup. Uh, excuse the pun. Uh, yeah. what, you, what are your best memories of, of that run? Well, a few years before that, we actually we got to the last thirty-two for the first time, and we played Platinum Stars in Rustenburg. Uh, half my team had never been on an aeroplane, which was a which was quite an exciting thing for us. And um, I mean. Credit to to Platinum Stars. They put out their full team. You know, they had eight international players playing against us. And we were an ABC Motsepi side. And uh, I just said to the guys, just get to halftime in the game. You know, just one nil will be fine. We conceded in the second minute, <laughs> Elizar Rogers. And then we got we gave a penalty just before halftime. So two nil down, 34 degrees playing in Rustenburg. And then we lost three nil as well. But that, that was the start of kind of uh, of a good journey of of introducing these young players to what it takes to become a professional. You know, you say the same message to every young player. I sound like a stuck record, but talent talent is not enough. Talent only opens the door. And I've seen this in my playing career. I've seen talented players who didn't have the right work ethic, didn't have the right attitude, the right discipline. So, so I've got very good examples to share with these guys. And you know, Tapela was a classic example of a guy when you said to him, you're doing that wrong, try it this way. He would try it a hundred times straight away. Yeah. You know, he, he trusted us. Um, so the season that we got was 2018, 2019. We uh, we won the local um, ABC Motsepe for the Western Cape. We won our NetBank Cup final uh, type game. Then we had to play the the provincial final against the SAB winners. And we played Greenwood Athletic in uh, Steenburg, a hell of a game. Big crowd, you know, uh, hostile because we, we, we were always the away team uh, when you play the, the uh, team in the lower league. And they missed a penalty that could have uh, could have taken them one lap. Missed a penalty, hit the crossbar, guy, absolutely smashed it. And then we, we, got, we got a goal later on, won that. And we sent Wade Crowey up to Joburg for the draw. And I, my last words to him, and, and he even tweeted it, I said to him, Wade, you don't come back without Kaiser Chiefs. If you're going up to and you'll be on TV, you don't come back without Kaiser Chiefs. Because if you're going to play, you know, and the chances of, of, of winning that game. And uh, he came back with Maccabi. We got Maccabi. And we had to go and play them in Dobsonville. So I said, it's, it's, you know, Wade, unlucky, he didn't give me Kaiser Chiefs, but we'll take Maccabi. So we won that on penalties. We drew 0-0, and we should have lost, but we drew 0-0, and we won on penalties, which was amazing. So so Wade went up again, and we said, no, nah, nah, you better come to Chiefs. And we got Kaiser Chiefs, and it was incredible. We, we were supposed to play in Cape Town. We couldn't get a stadium that was available, big enough for the, for the, for the level of that game. 
And we ended up, we, we got given the option by the PSL of either Port Elizabeth or Durban. And Durban would have been cool for me to go back home, but um, Durban's also a bit of a home ground for Chiefs. And PE being closer, we chose PE. We played in a World Cup stadium. And the fact is that AB, our budget for the whole season wouldn't cover Karma Billiat's monthly salary. Jeez. And he's on the our whole team. And and to draw nil-nil with them after 90 minutes. I mean, I was arguing at the end of 90 minutes to say he should just give us the game. I mean, <laughs> a draw should be a victory. Yeah, and we conceded a penalty just before halftime of extra time, and you got to chase the game, and then they just killed us. But that really was the magic of the cup, and that it's games like that that are really an example for every kid in the country that that if you work hard and you're disciplined and you're focused, you got a chance, man. You can make it. I saw Jerry Sikosana bought an ABC team, and and you tweeted him and said uh, if if he has any if he's looking for any advice, he can get in contact with you. Um, <laughs> What advice do you have for him? Uh, just lastly on that topic, uh, what advice do you have for Jerry, um, you know, in his venture into club ownership? Yeah, I think uh, got a lot of lessons about being involved in the ABC Motepe League. And, and unfortunately, and this is on the record, it is, it's corrupt. You know, the certain match officials who don't get paid well enough, if they get offered something, they'll probably take it. And, and that's, I've seen it, I've seen it firsthand. And, um, you know, I try to fight it from the inside. I wrote letters, staying get a response. People aren't interested. And, um, you know, in hindsight, maybe I could have saved myself a few heart attacks by just being prepared for that and just expecting it and not being as shocked because I ended up fighting with too many people, moaning, you know, and leaving dodgy football fields late at night, worried that somebody was going to jump out and beat me up or try and attack me or something because of things I'd said. So... I think you you just got to be aware that it's it's really really tough. It's a tough league to to win, and and not everyone is your friend. Simple as that. Jerry, other so I think he can handle himself. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's great advice. Uh, just to go up one division, maybe we just quickly touch on the Glad Africa Championship. Um, obviously, you know, based in in the Western Cape. Um, and myself, having been there for two years, the, the Cape Town team seems to have been struggling a bit in, in, in recent seasons. Um, if you think of, if you look at the log right now, I think Steenberg, Cape Town All-Stars and the Cape Town Spurs now are all fighting in the top, uh, bottom five rather. Cape United were there, but they've actually moved up quite well um, in recent weeks. Why do you think that is and, and what has to happen in, in that area for for teams to get back into the first division? Obviously a very, you know, um, Proud area when it comes down to football. You know, you think of Santos and you think of Ajax Cape Town and now Cape Town City. What do teams in that area need to do to get back into into top level? Yeah, it's a, it's a curious one because the the talent in the Western Cape is phenomenal. There's, I mean, I'm proudly Durban born and bred, but Cape Town's got fantastic talent, incredible number of talented players. One of the reasons might be because there's four teams in Cape Town. Uh, very and Cape Town City as well. So you've got five clubs in uh, Cape Town City, obviously in the PSL, but the four other clubs are all really competing for talent and they all know each other really well. And so you, you've, you've got six derby matches, you know, whereas a lot of other teams in, in their various areas, they might have one derby, so two matches a season or no derbies. There's six derbies down here and they're, they're really tough games. And, and obviously, uh, a lot of the other clubs, obviously based up north, it's a lot of traveling for these guys. 
And I'm also, I'm, I'm really disappointed in the coaching merry-go-round at NFD level as well. I mean, the Cape sides, I can't think of, maybe Cape, Cape United are the only ones I don't think have had a change of, of coach yet. The other three have all had numerous coaching changes and not not just because of results. You know, it's it's at one stage, um, Ian Taylor was doing, I thought he was doing quite well at Cape Town Spurs. He just picked up a good couple of results getting on track and then, you know, he got released. So, it's a weird one. I think the Cape Towns just need to almost be a little bit more organised, you know, a little organised and, and, and a little bit more patient because the talent's definitely here. Yeah, Coach V, Steve Barker, I didn't forget about Stellenbosch FC, obviously, uh, also competing in the top forgot club. about right Stellenbosch, now. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then maybe if we can move on to the DSV Premiership, as we call it now. Uh, you spoke earlier on in the podcast about Bitvest Vits. Uh, I was lucky enough to be involved with them in the bubble last year. And it was almost surreal when they played Polokwane City on the final day and thinking, you know, this is the end of, of 99 years of, of tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, they just won the league a few seasons back. Um, how sad were you as a football fan that you are? Um, how sad were you to see them just dissolved like that? Yeah, again, you know, I've I collect all, you know, we've chatted about this football memorabilia and that. I've, I've still got the, the cigarette cards of the NFL players uh, in South Africa from the 60s and the early 70s and old match programs. And I, you know, I, I love the history of, of South African football and the fact that franchises can be bought and sold and names change and history just down the toilet off, you know, it's, it's a really sad, it's a really sad situation. I just, I just got off a, off a, a presentation just now with the head of methodology at Athletic Bilbao. It's a club from 1898, you know, you can't imagine that those big European clubs will ever just change the names. It does happen. There's, there's, there's a couple of examples, but, you know, uh, you know, Vitbank Black Aces was an unbelievable club. What are their supporters? What do they talk about now? My sad story is that I, I, I played for Seven Stars, which doesn't exist. I played for Hellenic, and I played half a game, only half a game for Mother City. They don't exist. So, you know, if I start talking to people about the teams I played for, I'm, only one I can really talk about is Amazulu because the others don't even exist anymore. So, you know, Hellenic have got a great academy, but it's a really sad thing. And in Witz's case, it, it was really a disappointing thing because that's a that's an institution for me. I played many games against them as a junior when I lived in Joburg and then obviously um, NSL and PSL football. And just to have that just disappear, it's, it's, it's really sad. So it's, it's, a, it's another symptom, I think, of the issues around South African football, you know, I think you can't just look at what's happening with Bafana Bafana in isolation. I, I think there's a, there's a knock-on effect of all these things, you know, of of corruption in the ABC Motepi League, of merry-go-round in the NFD, of PSL franchise be, being bought and sold into, you know, the Bafana coach being hired at the last minute. There's a lot of issues and I'm, I'm shocked that there isn't a, a bigger, louder debate. I, 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 there's no protest about it. You know, and South African football, it's, it's the biggest sport by a million miles in this country. It's our passion. Yeah. Uh, we've got some really big institutions. I mean, you know, Kaiser Chiefs, Pirates. I mean, those are, those are fantastic South African football brands. Uh, but I don't think there's enough people that are that concerned about. There are people that are concerned, but we're just not making a big enough effort to say we need to change. Yeah, Bilbao are so unique. I mean, just choosing Basque players and relying solely on that for, you know, like you said, a century. It's just, it's just quite incredible. Um, 
If we can maybe just talk about your career quickly and and what do you think is the difference of when you were playing the game and you know today uh, I see you quite often tweet about soft players and I think Son has, <laughs> Son has taken a few hits in recent weeks and there was um, I think Sabios Danny Sabios for his die was Danny Sabios of Arsenal um, for the penalty against or yeah. which ended up not being a penalty against Everton. Um, what do you think is the biggest difference between when you played the game and today's players? Well, I think you could, I mean, it's also hard to compare today's players across the world because obviously in Europe with VAR and in South Africa, you don't have VAR. So I think the, the European based players are almost taking advantage of VAR. I think they've worked out that if you go down, it's going to get reviewed. And it, I don't think the guys that are operating VAR can really gauge the severity of the contact, especially if they haven't played the game. I mean, Sebelos is, when he died for Arsenal, I mean, uh, you know, that's a that's a booking for me for, for simulation. But, I mean, I, I, I don't, I never want to be one of those, the older, the older I get, the better I was type of thing. You know, in, in my day, the tackle from behind was legal. It was part of the game. We didn't know any better. It wasn't like we argued that they tackled from behind. That was the law of the game, you know. And we've got guys like Gavin Lane and John Salter and Brooks Madar hammering you from behind. And now I'm 52 and I've had six knee operations. Kind of tells a story, you know. So I think the guys who played in the 60s, even worse, and then 70s, 80s, you know, I played in the, in the early 90s. Um, I think the modern footballer is protected. Uh, and, and I think they milk it a little bit with regards to the, the, the diving and the simulation. I also understand why because the reward is is huge if you get the free kick or you get the penalty and it's all about results for sure. Biggest difference is that we were amateurs really. We we talk about we were professionals but we weren't. Because uh I don't I can't even think of anyone at Amazulu who was a full-time professional, you know, in, in my day. I worked in the mornings and then I had training in the evenings. You know, Clive Clive Barker was our coach but he he was working at Puma during the day, you know, and then he would come and coach in the evening. So, so we weren't professional by any stretch. Uh, the conditioning of the players today is absolutely phenomenal. They're unbelievable athletes, you know, video technology, analysis, uh, conditioning, diets, all those things. We were actually a million miles away from where they are now. But when you, when you go and watch the footage, and I can see the level, the level now is much more professional and quicker and stronger and all those things, but it's not entertaining. And it, it almost looks like the conveyor belt has been, someone has turned up the dial, the, the, the speed of it. And the guys are coming off the conveyor belt much quicker, but they've had less time to, to, uh, to prepare and to hone their technique. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the 10,000 hour rule because I spent every spare minute kicking a ball, either trying to dribble my two Rottweilers or make my brother be the goalkeeper or breaking my mom's pot plants, trying to hit the targets, whatever it was, but it's hours and hours and hours. Uh, no academy, you know, play amateur football, go to college, and then suddenly you, you're playing for Bufana. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it was a shock. These guys are coming through the academy, and then they and, and, and everyone's in a race to produce the next talent, you know, the next quickest, youngest talent. And, and he, he comes out and he's suddenly under pressure to win games. And I think it's a little bit unfair in a way, but the money's big and everyone's desperate to get it. But the product on the field is not good enough. Uh, um, International players who don't always control the ball, and we never control the ball well all the time, but we were amateurs. But these guys should really be able to control the ball and pass the ball much better than, than what they're doing at the moment. So there's this disconnect between the more money and the more pressure, 
the less ability almost. It's quite sad. Uh, as South Africans, I think we like to reminisce about uh, the 90s, especially because, you know, we obviously won the AFCON and, and did so well in the two tournaments after that. I think we came second and in third. Um, you know, as as Afrikaans speaking football follower, a lot of, I think, I, I, you know, quite, uh, you know, one in a million. So I think a lot of people, especially family members, they ask me why it's, uh, it's why is Bafana Bafana doing so shit today? Why aren't they as, as good as they were in the 90s? You know, 96, obviously, you know, teams go through generations where you've got great players. You know, you use Belgium as an example earlier on, and, and it was a great example because of the, the quality they have now. Um, what do you think has gone wrong for us? Um, you know, it's obviously, we could spend a few hours debating this, but... Uh, on the surface, do you think we just don't have the type of players that can compete with the rest of the world uh, at this given time? No, we, we we have the players. That's that's the that's all we've got actually. We've got the players. I don't think the organisation and administration is as good as it can be. I think I think that's lacking. I don't think we use sports science enough. I also sometimes want to blame the players that I don't think they're professional enough in terms of the, their attitudes with how they live their lives, how they look after their bodies off the field. Um, one of the biggest issues is the lack of competitive school football. And, 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 and right now is exceptional because of COVID, but we're talking over the last 10 years. You know, I remember being in that Bufana squad with, you know, with Fani Medida, Dr. Kamala, Shuz Michelle, Lucas Udebe, all these top stars. But they will all tell you how good their school football was. You know, they all came through good school football programs. Uh, and obviously in their day, you know, I was in matric 86 with a, with a lot of the guys of my generation in that Bufana squad and it was full-time apartheid, you know. So it wasn't like the black guys and the colored guys and the white guys were playing against each other. Black guys were, you know, playing soccer amongst themselves in Soweto. Colored guys in the Cape were playing against each other and everything. But there was this very well-organized uh, school football um, organizations, very competitive. And then we used to have our interprovincial tournaments. Again, I played, you know, uh, all white kids, you know, but the Natal side of white players have the, the likes of uh, Mark Davies and Robbie Milne, you know, and Grant, and, uh, Grant and Greg Hepburn, guys who all ended up playing PSL level because the school football was very high level. Then, I don't know how many years ago, there was this big fight about who ran school football and it ended up being that no one ran it because while they were busy fighting and it wasn't that well organized. And I think you had a lot of guys relying on club football. And then you also had the club football structures merging, you know, and you had the the former, uh, you know, black area administrators, white area administrators, all trying to compete for positions at the combined table and I think that was also a bit of chaos. So I think club football levels kind of dropped. You know, this is a generalization, but I think club football and school football all kind of dropped at the same time. And there was a generation of players who lost out. They didn't have enough organized, competitive level of football. And so that generation, you know, and I can't put my finger exactly on which generation it was, but there's a generation of players who really missed out on, on a lot of their development, a lot of their training. I get the sense now, and I'm, I'm doing something with the KZM Football Association, the High School Football Association. I get the sense that things are people have worked it out, and I think there are people slowly taking more control and getting themselves better organised. And I think that that we'll see a better level of let's call it grassroots football. 
In some provinces, if you if KZN right now, club football's in a mess. In the Western Cape, it's not. You know, but in KZN, the school football's well organized. In the Western Cape, it's it's not. Mm. So there's a bit of a balancing act here, but I think it's at that level. And, and when I say grassroots, it's really the 13 to 18 band. You know, and, and you'll know that the, the, the top schools in the Western Cape, they hate football. They don't want to see football there. It's cricket and it's water polo and it's hockey and it's rugby. But the other day I heard that Paul Ruiz, you'll know quite well, has got a football program, a big football program. Now, 10 years ago, if you walked past that school wearing a football shirt, you would have probably got beaten up. But now they've got a football program. And that gives me hope for the future. And a great college in Bloom have got a football program. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. Hilton College in Natal, big football program. You know, when, when you've got these top schools having football programs and then they start giving scholarships and bursaries to talented kids, she's then then the future of football funner is fine. Yeah. You know, uh, but it's going to take uh, probably uh, another generation before we yeah. can get. I was definitely. I think Mabasa was. Um, that's obviously now at, at Orlando Pirates. He was at at um, Grey Bloom, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is obviously historically a very big rugby school, and we see how good the Springboks yeah. have done because of school rugby. In the end of the day. Um, just uh, lastly, two two things before we get into your memorabilia, uh, something I'd love to chat to you about and, and some of the things you've got behind you. Uh, maybe just talk about your your favorite players um, from the 90s. I think, you know, growing up, I mean, I was very young still when when uh, we won AFCON. Um, uh, you know, some great names there, legends of the game, Sean Bartlett, Benny, you know, you think of Shoes Mastreo, I think a lot consider him, you know, amongst, you know, the top five players that Africa's ever had, Dr. Kumalo, obviously. Uh, who are your favorite players uh, to watch in that era? And, you know, for, for people who weren't lucky enough to watch them live, um, which players really stood out uh, for you? Yeah, so uh, if you don't mind, I'll go back one more generation. When I was at, like 15, 16 years old, uh, growing up in Durban, I watched the Durban Bushbucks team of 1985. They won the and my very first game at Glebe Stadium in Amlazi, I sat on the touchline. And the first player I saw was the number 11 for Morocco Swallows. They were playing Bushbucks. And the number 11 for Morocco Swallows, I don't know who he was, but he was the most skillful player I ever saw in my life. In the second half, the number 11 for Bushbucks was in front of me. And he, he was even more skillful than the previous more skillful guy. And I was like, who the hell are these guys? These are the best players I've ever seen in my life. And I found out afterwards that the Swallows player was a guy called Asim Nini. And then the Bushbucks guy was Professor Ungobani. And Professor Ungobani was an absolute magician. You know, he, he was everything great about South African football, wrapped up in a, in a slightly overweight man with the best left foot in the business. And he was an entertainer. He was a match winner. He was a general on the field. He could do everything with the ball. And uh, very good friends with him now. In fact, to call him my father, he, he was just in, phenomenal. And, and there's a generation of people who really missed out on those stars, and they missed out on so much as well. You know, the, the likes of Aysen Salengu, Joe Masona, Kaza, they were lucky they went to play in America. A guy like, uh, like Prof, he, he stayed in South Africa. There should be a stadium named after him because he was really an incredible human being. And at the time, in those 80s, with all the protests and... Um, you know, the police orders and state of emergency and all the drama that the guys in the townships had to deal with. Professor gave them hope and he, 
he entertained and he just made people switch off from all the drama they had to deal with and just watch him express himself on the football field. And he is the one guy that made me think, geez, I, I can actually play football in South Africa because I never thought about it. I, I grew up, my, my dad's from Scotland, uh, his family are from Manchester. I was born a Man United fan. My hero is Brian Robson, captain of Man United. So I always try to wear number seven in my career. So suddenly there's a South African guy just absolutely blowing my mind away, thinking, wow, you know, I want to play with that guy. I want to play in, at, at this level. And um, then the second game I watched was Bushbucks against Amazulu. It was a 4-4 draw in Amlazi, and Prof scored two free kicks past Paddy Leary. So I love Prof, but I love the Amazulu supporters, the chanting and the singing and the noise. And so I decided that's going to be my team. You know, I'm going to support them. So that was at 16. I decided to support them. I started training with them as a schoolboy. Um, some some incredible players at that generation. But then I went to college in America uh, for a couple of years, and then I came back because I just decided that I, I wanted to be a professional footballer. I wanted to try my luck. It was going to be hard in Europe. And Clive Barker had just become the Amazulu coach, and he'd, he'd asked about me. He knew my parents. And so I came back to Amazulu, and in a short space of time, he suddenly called up to the national squad. You know, and I don't I didn't know the guys, but I knew the names. You know, and I played against for the first couple of months of that year, you know. And, and then you're in the same dressing room or the same training pitch as Dr. Kamalo and Shuzmasha and Fani Madida, who was based in Turkey at, at the time. And when you, it's only really when you're up close with those guys that you can really see the quality. I mean, Dr. and Shoes were just phenomenal. You know, this phenomenal. And, and, and people always like this Ronaldo versus Messi type, you know, Dr. versus Shoes. And, but for me, we're just grateful that they were both around at the same time, you know, um, because I don't think Dr. could have been Dr. without knowing that he had to almost compete against Shoes and vice versa. But they're completely different. You know, Shoes is a better dribbler. Shoes could go past anybody. Dr. is a better passer of the ball. Doctor had great vision. And we always talk about his skills in that. But he was tough as well because Doctor would get kicked probably 10 times every game. You know, people forget that, that when you're a Doctor Kamalo, no one's taking it easy on you and you could tackle from behind. So Doctor was strong because, you know, he was hardly ever out injured. Now, Fawani Medida was a goal machine. Calvin Peterson, near the end of his career, in the Bafana squad. And uh, we'll still call him a special player because he would, if you didn't say that to him, he'd tell you he's a special player. <laughs> Young Lucas Shudebi and Sizwe Mutaung, incredible. And then obviously a couple of the old heads, you know, so Neil Tovey, Kuku, uh, on my debut for Bufana, I'll never forget. Uh, I hadn't slept the night before because I thought if I make a mistake, you know, that's the end of it. Um, on the field, we're playing uh, Congo, my first World Cup qualifying match. And Neil was, he came up to me. I didn't have to. He came up to me and he said, don't forget, the game's the same. It's the same ball. It's the same markings. It's 11 v 11. Don't worry about the crowd. The first time you get the ball, control it and pass it to the nearest player and then you'll be fine. You know, it's just like, because I'm thinking the first time I get it, I need to go try and go past three people and put one in. You know? Yeah. And so that first pass, you just control it, you pass it and it's almost like the weight just drops off your shoulders and, and that's why there's room for experienced players in the game, you know, and people say, oh, he's 33. South Africa, there's a huge thing around age. Oh, he's 33. He's completely past it. But it's all the tips and advice that that guy's giving to the younger players at training that you, you, there's no value to it. It's, you, you can't even measure that. 
Yeah, you think of guys like Vio Mary, Clayton Daniels now. I think clubs have really realized how important these players are. And they're still playing in a high level. You think of Jabulani Maluleke, how how uh, what a high level you were still playing at Polokwane City last season. Um, yeah. Just just lastly, on your memorabilia, you've obviously collected quite a few cool things. Um, you showed me just before we started the podcast. I think the one thing, one thing I want to talk about is the, the soccer balls and the soccer balls from different World Cups, if I'm not mistaken. So if you can maybe just give us a rundown of what you've got, um, just quickly, yeah. that would be great. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the full. It's pretty much the full range of the of the Adidas replica balls from the World Cup because I, I actually started by by buying World Cup magazines, the match program uh, memorabilia. So you know, I've got the I've got one from Chile, nineteen sixty two. I've got mm. the one from England, sixty six. Uh, and so while I was collecting the magazines, match programs, then I started going into a couple of other things. And then suddenly it's into the balls and everything. And my wife always fights with me. That's why it's all crammed in my office because there's no room in the house for it. And it's like, you know, what's the point of all this stuff? But uh, I keep saying it's my pension. It's my pension. Um, so there's a 74 World Cup replica ball from Germany and then 78. I'm missing on that list up at the top there. There's a sign that Nike one's a sign Ronaldinho ball. There's the 2006 in 1998 in France, actually, I, I can't find that one at the moment. And the German, the Zeitgeist 2006. So I'm still in the market for that. Uh, and if anyone's listening to this, I do have some extras of the earlier ones. I'm, I'm, I'm in the I'm in the market for trading. So I've got a 98 or a Germany 2006. Uh, call my agent AB and get in touch with me. Um, there's over 500 football books behind me from 1958 Roy of the Rovers, the very first one. You know, so um, a lot of football books, a lot of um, autobiographies of of players from Ferenc Puskas, who played for Hungary and Real Madrid in the 50s, yeah. right up to Madiba's boys, where I've got to mention about my injury and all this type of stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm surrounded by football. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to show this other part of the of the office. There's my, my 1992 golden boot is sitting down there in the corner. That's what happens with old footballers, like your... Your achievements are just kind of hidden, you know. Um, I've got ten Bafana Bafana jerseys that are signed and framed in my in my garage. It's the only place I can keep them. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, there's there's quite a collection, and uh, I showed you the little bobbleheads. Uh, you know, the Neil Tovies and shoes yeah. and Doctor and yeah, I've got them all up there from '96. But anything that's got like a Bafana Bafana logo on it, I kind of collect that stuff. I'm looking at a signed Kaza Chiefs cap from the from the chairman, Kaza Mutaung. It's one of my heroes. Uh, signed that to me, wishing me all the best. And I've, I can see the South African flag that I took with me to the World Cup in 1994 in America. Uh, I was hoping to go there as a player, but I ended up going there as a, as a supporter. And AB, I was at the World Cup final in 94, Brazil, Italy. Unbelievable how I even got a ticket. That's a long story, but I was there like 10 rows from the front between the 18-yard line and the halfway line with the South African flag in my Bafana shirt, Jeez. waving the flag proudly. And um, football's football's given me a lot, man. I love it. There's a show on YouTube. Just before we go, there's a show on YouTube. They always ask, um, I think it's what you wore. I think that's the show. They go through 
um, players and what you know jerseys they wore during, during their career. And the host always asks uh, his guests if there was a fire, let's now say in your study, and you could only take three things with you, uh, what would it be and why? <laughs> only three things. <laughs> I'll take that whole cupboard there, that whole cupboard there, that whole cupboard there. Oh, jeez, that's. I mean, if my children aren't in here, then I don't have to worry about them. So, because they, I'll grab the two of them first, and then my wife. But um, <laughs> tough one, man. Jeez, really tough one. I think the 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 Adidas Golden Boot, because it was a it was a great achievement for me. You know, Amazulu right near the bottom of the table, and I scored twenty three goals that season. You know, which is still a club record at Amazulu, but um, I hope someone breaks that very soon. I've got a signed Man United jersey from the 60s, signed by Bobby Charlton and Nobby Styles. And uh, Nobby Styles recently passed away. So, and then just outside my door, I've actually got signed Maradona jersey and an Eric Cantona. So I'll take the Maradona. Cheap, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a good choice. Well, thanks, Jules. Thanks for your insight. And, and it's, great, it's been great chatting to you and, and getting to know you a bit better. Uh, good luck with everything. And yeah, hopefully we'll catch up soon. No, luck, Abby. Thanks very much, Ab. Cool. Cheers, George. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Disky Discussions. If you have any questions or guests you'd like me to have on the show, please hit me up at AB underscore Basson on Twitter or on Instagram. Stay safe, like, subscribe, aware.